You know what's totally freaking crazy is almost every single story that we've read so far on science fiction shorts has started with the word the. We started with the brick moon. Then we did the conquest of Gola. Then we did Mr. Spaceship. And then the discovery of a world in the moon. And then a couple with Omid, the caves of steel, the naked sun. And then with Mike, we did We Didn't Do Anything Wrong Hardly. So there's two that don't have the. And now I'm doing the diamond lens. It's weird. I Is that like a thing of the times? Uh, all stories started with the article the. I don't know. But something I just noticed right now. I'm looking at all the files that I've saved in a folder. And they're all... They all start with the, almost. Anyway, we're going to finish up the f- most recent the story that we're reading, The Diamond Lens, today. Since having recorded the first one, I did look this guy up, uh, Mr. Oh, I already forgot his name. Scrolling up, Mr. Fitz James O'Brien. And the question was, did he actually die in the uh, Civil War? And it turns out he did. It is one of the first things the Wikipedia article says about him. He he is a Civil War veteran. So that's crazy. Um, you know, maybe I shouldn't be surprised. I know it was a bloody battle, but um, yeah, poor guy. From what I remember reading, if he didn't last long, he got wounded and kind of died slowly over the few months or something anyway apparently he wrote this story before he joined the war and we're gonna finish it up today so as a little recap uh this guy does he even have a name i don't even know if he has a name um the narrator got himself a telescope in his apartment he's ditching school um but he wants a better lens and he asked a medium he asked a medium to summon the spirit of the father of microscopy and sure enough she was able to and he taught him how to build a diamond lens so we're going to see how that endeavor goes for our protagonist and uh well yeah let's see what happens here we go There was a light in Simon's room as I entered my house. A vague impulse urged me to visit him. As I opened the door of his sitting room unannounced, he was bending with his back toward me over a carcel lamp, apparently engaged in minutely examining some object which he held in his hands. As I entered, he started suddenly, thrust his hand into his breast pocket, and turned to me with a face crimson with confusion. What? I cried. Pouring over the miniature of some fair lady? Well, don't blush so much. I won't ask to see it. Simon laughed awkwardly enough, but made none of the negative protestations usual on such occasions. He asked me to take a seat. Simon, said I, 
I have just come from Madame Volpe's. This time, Simon turned as white as a sheet and seemed stupefied, as if a sudden electric shock had spitten him. He babbled some incoherent words and went hastily to a small closet where he usually kept his liquors. Although astonished at his emotion, I was too preoccupied with my own idea to pay much attention to anything else. You say truly when you call Madame Volpe's a devil of a woman, I continued. Simon, she told me wonderful things tonight, or rather was the means of telling me wonderful things. Ah, if I could only get a diamond that weighed 140 carats. Scarcely had the sigh with which I uttered this desire died upon my lips when Simon, with the aspect of a wild beast, glared at me savagely and, rushing to the mantelpiece, where some foreign weapons hung on the wall, caught up a Malay crease and brandished it furiously before me. No, he cried in French, into which he always broke when excited. No, you shall not have it. You are perfidious. You have consorted with that demon and desire my treasure. But I will die first. Me, I am brave. You cannot make me fear. All this uttered in a loud voice, trembling with excitement, astounded me. I saw at a glance that I had accidentally trodden upon the edges of Simon's secret, whatever it was. It was necessary to reassure him. My dear Simon, I said, I am entirely at a loss to know what you mean. I went to Madame Volpe's to consult with her on a scientific problem, to the solution of which I discovered that a diamond the size I just mentioned was necessary. You were never alluded to during the evening, nor, so far as I was concerned, even thought of. What can be the meaning of this outburst? If you happen to have a set of valuable diamonds in your possession, you need fear nothing from me. The diamond which I require you could not possess, for if you did possess it, you would not be living here. Something in my tone must have completely reassured him for his expression immediately changed to a sort of constrained merriment, combined, however, with a certain suspicious attention to my movements. He laughed and said that I must bear with him, that he was at certain moments subject to a species of vertigo, which betrayed itself in incoherent speeches, and that the attacks passed off as rapidly as they came. He put his weapon aside while making this explanation and endeavored, with some success, to assume a more cheerful air. All this did not impose on me in the least. I was too much accustomed to analytical labors to be baffled by so flimsy a veil. I determined to probe the mystery to the bottom. Simon, said I gaily, let us forget all this over a bottle of burgundy. I have a case of Lassure's Clos Vogue downstairs, fragrant with the odors and ruddy with the sunlight of the Côte d'Or. Let us have a couple of bottles. What say you? With all my heart, answered Simon smilingly. I produced the wine and we seated ourselves to drink. It was of a famous vintage, that of 1848, a year when war and wine throve together, and its pure but powerful juice seemed to impart renewed vitality to the system. By the time we had half finished the second bottle, Simon's head, which I knew was a weak one, had begun to yield, while I remained calm as ever, only that every draft seemed to send a flush of vigor through my limbs. 
Simon's utterance became more and more indistinct. He took to singing French chansons of a not very moral tendency. I rose suddenly from the table, just at the conclusion of one of those incoherent verses, and, fixing my eyes upon him with a quiet smile, said, Simon, I have deceived you. I learned your secret this evening. You may as well be frank with me. Mrs. Volpe's, or rather, one of her spirits, told me all. He started with horror. His intoxication seemed for the moment to fade away, and he made a movement toward the weapon that he had a short time before laid down. I stopped him with my hand. Monster! he cried passionately. I am ruined! What shall I do? You shall never have it! I swear by my mother! I don't want it, I said. Rest secure, but be frank with me. Tell me all about it. The drunkenness began to return. He protested with maudlin earnestness that I was entirely mistaken, that I was intoxicated, then asked me to swear eternal secrecy and promised to disclose the mystery to me. I pledged myself, of course, to all. With an uneasy look in his eyes and hands unsteady with drink and nervousness, he drew a small case from his breast and opened it. Heavens! How the mild lamplight was shivered into a thousand prismatic arrows as it fell upon a vast rose diamond that glittered in the case. I was no judge of diamonds, but I saw at a glance that this was a gem of rare size and purity. I looked at Simon with wonder and, must I confess it, with envy. How could he have obtained this treasure? In reply to my questions, I could just gather from his drunken statements, of which I fancy half the incoherence was affected, that he had been superintending a gang of slaves engaged in diamond washing in Brazil, that he had seen one of them secrete a diamond, but instead of informing his employers, had quietly watched the Negro until he saw him bury his treasure, that he had dug it up and fled with it, but that, as yet, he was afraid to attempt to dispose of it publicly. So valuable a gem being almost certain to attract too much attention to its owner's antecedents. And he had not been able to discover any of those obscure channels by which such matters are conveyed away safely. He added that, in accordance with Oriental practice, he had named his diamond with the fanciful title of The Eye of Mourning. While Simon was relating this to me, I regarded the great diamond attentively. Never had I beheld anything so beautiful. All the glories of light ever imagined or described seemed to pulsate in its crystalline chambers. Its weight, as I learned from Simon, was exactly 140 carats. Here was an amazing coincidence. The hand of destiny seemed in it. On the very evening when the spirit of Luwinok communicates to me the great secret of the microscope, the priceless means which he directs me to employ start up within my easy reach. I determined with the most perfect deliberation to possess myself of Simon's diamond. I sat opposite to him while he nodded over his glass and calmly revolved the whole affair. I did not for an instant contemplate so foolish an act as a common theft, which would of course be discovered, or at least necessitate flight and concealment, all of which must interfere with my scientific plans. There was but one step to be taken. 
to kill Simon. After all, what was the life of a little peddling Jew in comparison with the interests of science? Whoa. Human beings are taken every day from the condemned prisons to be experimented on by surgeons. This man Simon was by his own confession a criminal, a robber, and I believed on my own soul a murderer. He deserved death quite as much as any felon condemned by the laws. Why should I not, like government, contrive that his punishment should contribute to the progress of human knowledge? The means for accomplishing everything I desired lay within my reach. There stood upon the mantelpiece a bottle half full of French laudanum. Simon was so occupied with his diamond, which I had just restored to him, that it was an affair of no difficulty to drug his glass. In a quarter of an hour, he was in a profound sleep. I now opened his waistcoat, took the diamond from the inner pocket in which he had placed it, and removed him to the bed, on which I laid him so that his feet hung down over the edge. I had possessed myself of the Malay crease, which I held in my right hand, while with the other I discovered as accurately as I could, by pulsation, the exact locality of the heart. It was essential that all the aspects of his death should lead to the surmise of self-murder. I calculated the exact angle at which it was probable that the weapon, if leveled by Simon's own hand, would enter his breast. Then with one powerful blow, I thrust it up to the hilt in the very spot which I desired to penetrate. A convulsive thrill ran through Simon's limbs. I heard a smothered sound issue from his throat precisely like the bursting of a large air bubble sent up by a diver when it reaches the surface of the water. He turned half around on his side, and, as if to assist my plans more effectually, his right hand, moved by some mere spasmodic impulse, clasped the handle of the crease, which it remained holding with extraordinary muscular tenacity. Beyond this there was no apparent struggle, the laudanum, I presume, paralyzed the usual nervous action. He must have died instantly. There was yet something to be done. To make it certain that all suspicion of the act should be diverted from any inhabitant of the house of Simon himself, it was necessary that the door should be found in the morning, locked on the inside. How to do this, and afterward escape myself? Not by the window. That was a physical impossibility. Besides, I was determined that the windows also should be found bolted. The solution was simple enough. I descended softly to my own room for a peculiar instrument which I had used for holding small slippery substances, such as minute spheres of glass, etc. This instrument was nothing more than a long slender hand vise with a very powerful grip and a considerable leverage, which last was accidentally owing to the shape of the handle. Nothing was simpler than, when the key was in the lock, to seize the end of its stem in this vice, through the keyhole from the outside, and so lock the door. Previously, however, to doing this, I burned a number of papers on Simon's hearth. Suicides almost always burn papers before they destroy themselves. I almost emptied some more laudamen into Simon's glass, having first removed from it all traces of wine 
cleaned the other wine glass, and brought the bottles away with me. If traces of two persons drinking had been found in the room, the question naturally would have arisen, who was the second? Besides, the wine bottles might have been identification as belonging to me. The laudanum I poured out to account for its presence in his stomach, in case of a post-mortem examination. The theory naturally would be that he first intended to poison himself, but after swallowing a little of the drug, was either disgusted with its taste or changed his mind from other motives, and chose the dagger. These arrangements made, I walked out, leaving the gas burning, locked the door with my vice, and went to bed. Simon's death was not discovered until nearly three in the afternoon. The servant, astonished at seeing the gas burning, the light streaming on the dark landing from under the floor, peeped through the keyhole and saw Simon on the bed. She gave the alarm. The door was burst open, and the neighborhood was in a fervor of excitement. Everyone in the house was arrested, myself included. There was an inquest, but no clue to his death beyond that of suicide could be obtained. Curiously, though, he had made several speeches to his friends the preceding week that seemed to point to self-destruction. One gentleman swore that Simon had said in his presence that he was tired of life. His landlord affirmed that Simon, when paying him his last month's rent, remarked that he should not pay him rent much longer. All the other evidence corresponded. The door locked inside, the position of the corpse, the burned papers. As I anticipated, no one knew of the possession of the diamond by Simon, so that no motive was suggested for his murder. The jury after a prolonged examination, brought in the usual verdict, and the neighborhood, once more, settled down to its accustomed quiet. Three months succeeding Simon's catastrophe, I devoted night and day to my diamond lens. I had constructed a vast galvanic battery, composed of nearly 2,000 pairs of plates. A higher power I dared not use, lest the diamond should be calcined. By means of this enormous engine, I was enabled to send a powerful current of electricity continually through my great diamond, which it seemed to me gained a luster every day. At the expiration of a month, I commenced the grinding and polishing of the lens, a work of intense toil and exquisite delicacy. The great density of the stone and the care required to be taken with the curvatures of the surfaces of the lens rendered the labor the severest and most harassing that I had yet undergone. At last, the eventful moment came. The lens was completed. I stood trembling on the threshold of new worlds. I had the realization of Alexander's famous wish before me. The lens lay on the table, ready to be placed upon its platform. My hand fairly shook as I enveloped a drop of water with a thin coating of oil of turpentine, preparatory to its examination, a process necessary in order to prevent the rapid evaporation of the water. I now placed the drop on a thin slip of glass under the lens, and throwing upon it, by the combined aid of a prism and a mirror, a powerful stream of light, I approached my eye to the minute hole drilled through the axis of the lens. For an instant I saw nothing save what seemed to be an illuminated chaos a vast, luminous abyss. A pure white light, cloudless and serene, and seemingly limitless as space itself, was my first impression. Gently, and with the greatest care, I depressed the lens a few hairbreadths, 
The wondrous illumination still continued, but as the lens approached the object, a scene of indescribable beauty was unfolded to my view. I seemed to gaze upon a vast space, the limits of which extended far beyond my vision. An atmosphere of magical luminousness permeated the entire field of view. I was amazed to see no trace of Animaculus life. Not a living thing, apparently, inhabited that dazzling expanse. I comprehended instantly that, by the wondrous power of my lens, I had penetrated beyond the grosser particles of aqueous matter, beyond the realms of infusoria and protozoa, down to the original gaseous globule, into whose luminous interior I was gazing as into an almost boundless dome filled with a supernatural radiance. It was, however, no brilliant void into which I looked. On every side I beheld beautiful inorganic forms, of unknown texture and colored with the most enchanting hues. These forms presented the appearance of what might be called, for want of a more specific definition, foliated clouds of the highest rarity. That is, they undulated and broke into vegetable formations, and were tinged with splendors compared with which the gliding of our autumn woodlands is as dross compared with gold. Far away into the illimitable distance stretched long avenues of these gaseous forests, dimly transparent and painted with prismatic hues of unimaginable brilliancy. The pendant branches waved along the fluid glades until every vista seemed to break through half-lucent ranks of many-colored, drooping silken pennons. What seemed to be either fruits or flowers piled with a thousand hues, lustrous and ever-varying, bubbled from the crowns of this fairy foliage. No hills, no lakes, no rivers, no forms animate or inanimate were to be seen save those vast auroral copses that floated serenely in the luminous stillness, with leaves and fruits and flowers gleaming with unknown fires, unrealizable by mere imagination. How strange, I thought, that this sphere should be thus condemned to solitude. I had hoped, at least, to discover some new form of animal life, perhaps of a lower class than any with which we at present acquainted, but still some living organism. I found my newly discovered world, if I may so speak, a beautiful chromatic desert. While I was speculating on the singular arrangements of the internal economy of nature, with which she so frequently splinters into atoms of most compact theories, I thought I beheld a form moving slowly through the glades of one of the prismatic forests. I looked more attentively, and found that I was not mistaken. Words cannot depict the anxiety with which I awaited the nearer approach of this mysterious object. Was it merely some inanimate substance held in suspense in the attenuated atmosphere of the globule? Or was it an animal endowed with vitality and motion? It approached, flitting behind the gauzy, colored veils of cloud foliage, for seconds dimly revealed and vanishing. At last the violet pennons that trailed nearest to me vibrated. 
They were gently pushed aside, and the form floated out into the broad light. It was a female human shape. When I say human, I mean it possessed the outlines of humanity. But there the analogy ends. Its adorable beauty lifted it illimitable heights beyond the loveliest daughter of Adam. I cannot, I dare not attempt to inventory the charms of this divine revelation of perfect beauty. Those eyes of mystic violet, dewy and serene, evade my words. Her long, lustrous hair flowing from glorious head in a golden wake, like the tracks sown in heaven by a falling star, seems to quench my most burning phrases with its splendors. If all the bees of Hibla nested upon my lips, they would still sing but hoarsely the wondrous harmonies of outline that enclosed her form. She swept out from between the rainbow curtains of the cloud trees into the broad sea of light that lay beyond. Her motions were those of some graceful naiad, cleaving by a mere effort of her will the clear, unruffled waters that fill the chambers of the sea. She floated forth with the serene grace of a frail bubble ascending through the still atmosphere of a June day. The perfect roundness of her limbs formed suave and enchanting curves. It was like listening to the most spiritual symphony of Beethoven the Divine to watch the most harmonious flows of lines. This, indeed, was a pleasure cheaply purchased at any rate. What cared I if I waded to the portal of this wonder through another's blood? I would have given my own to enjoy one such moment of intoxication and delight. Breathless with gazing on this lovely wonder, and forgetful for an instant of everything save her presence, I withdrew my eye from the microscope eagerly. Alas, as my gaze fell on the thin slide that lay beneath my instrument, the bright light from mirror and from prison sparkled, on a colorless drop of water. There, in that tiny bead of dew, this beautiful thing was forever imprisoned. The planet Neptune was not more distant from me than she. I hastened once more to apply my eye to the microscope. Anamula, let me now call her by that dear name which I subsequently bestowed upon her, had changed her position. She had again approached the wondrous forest, and was gazing earnestly upward. Presently, one of the trees, as I must call them, unfolded a long ciliary process, with which it seized one of the gleaming fruits that glittered on its summit, and, sweeping slowly down, held it within reach of Anamula. The sylph took it in her delicate hand and began to eat. My attention was so entirely absorbed by her that I could not apply myself to the task of determining whether this singular plant was or was not indistinct with volition. I watched her as she made her repast with the most profound attention. The suppleness of her motions sent a thrill of delight through my frame. My heart beat madly as she turned her beautiful eyes in the direction of the spot in which I looked. What would I not have given to have had the power to precipitate myself into that luminous ocean and float with her through the grooves of purple and gold. While I was thus breathlessly following her every movement, she suddenly startled, seemed to listen for a moment, 
and then cleaving the brilliant ether in which she was floating, like a flash of light, pierced through the opaline forest and disappeared. Instantly, a series of the most singular sensations attacked me. It seemed as if I had suddenly gone blind. The luminous sphere was still before me, but my daylight had vanished. What caused this sudden disappearance? Had she a lover or a husband? Yes, that was the solution. Some signal from a happy fellow being had vibrated through the avenues of the forest, and she had obeyed the summons. The agony of my sensations, as I arrived at this conclusion, startled me. I tried to reject the conviction that my reason forced upon me. I battled against the final conclusion, but in vain. It was so. I had no escape from it. I loved an animalcule. It is true that, thanks to the marvelous power of my microscope, she appeared of human proportions. Instead of presenting the revolting aspect of the coarser creatures that lived and struggle and die in the more easily resolvable portions of the water drop, she was fair and delicate and of surpassing beauty. But of what account was all that? Every time that my eye was withdrawn from the instrument, it fell on a miserable drop of water, within which, I must be content to know, dwelt all that could make my life lovely. Could she but see me once? Could I for one moment pierce the mystical walls that so inexorably rose to separate us, and whisper all that filled my soul? I might consent to be satisfied for the rest of my life with the knowledge of her remote sympathy. It would be something to have established even the faintest personal link to bind us together. To know that at times, when roaming through these enchanted glades, she might think of the wonderful stranger who had broken the monotony of her life with his presence and left a gentle memory in her heart. But it could not be. No invention of which human intellect was capable could break down the barriers that nature had erected. I might feast my soul upon her wondrous beauty, yet she must always remain ignorant of the adoring eyes that day and night gazed upon her, and, even when closed, beheld her in dreams. With a bitter cry of anguish, I fled from the room, and flinging myself on the bed, sobbed myself to sleep like a child. I rose the next morning, almost at daybreak, and rushed to my microscope. I trembled as I sought the luminous world in miniature that contained my all. Anna Mula was there. I had left the gas lamp, surrounded by its moderators, burning when I went to bed the night before. I found the sylph bathing, as it were, with an expression of pleasure animating her features, in the brilliant light which surrounded her. She tossed her lustrous golden hair over her shoulders with innocent coquetry. She lay at full length in the transparent medium in which she supported herself with ease and gambled with the enchanting grace that the nymph Salmacus might have exhibited when she sought to conquer the modest Hermaphrodotus. I tried an experiment to satisfy myself if her powers of reflection were developed. I lessened the lamplight considerably. By the dim light that remained, I could see an expression of pain flit across her face. She looked upward suddenly, and her brows contracted. I flooded the stage of the microscope again with the full beam of light, and her whole expression changed. She sprang forward like some substance deprived of all weight. 
Her eyes sparkled and her lips moved. If science had only the means of conducting and reduplicating sounds as it does rays of light, what carols of happiness would then have entranced my ears? What jubilant hymns to Adonis would have thrilled the illumined air? I now comprehended how it was that the Count of Cabalus peopled his mystic world with sylphs, beautiful beings whose breath of life was lambent fire, and who sported forever in regions of purest ether and purest light. The Rosicrucian had anticipated the wonder that I had practically realized. How long this worship of my strange divinity went on thus, I scarcely know. I lost all note of time. All day from early dawn and far into the night, I was to be found peering through that wonderful lens. I saw no one, went nowhere, and scarce allowed myself sufficient time for my meals. My whole life was absorbed in contemplation as rapt as that of any of the Romish saints. Every hour that I gazed upon the divine form strengthened my passion, a passion that was always overshadowed by the maddening conviction that, although I could gaze on her at will, she never, never could behold me. At length I grew so pale and emaciated from the want of rest and continual brooding over my insane love and its cruel conditions that I determined to make some effort to wean myself from it. Come, I said, this is at best but a fantasy. Your imagination has bestowed on Anamula charms which in reality she does not possess. Seclusions from female society has produced this morbid condition of mind. Compare her with the beautiful women of your own world, and this false enchantment will vanish. I looked over the newspapers by chance. There I beheld the advertisement of a celebrated danseuse who appeared nightly at Niblo's. The Signorina Caradolce, and the reputation of being the most beautiful as well as the most graceful woman in the world. I instantly dressed and went to the theater. The curtain drew up. The usual semicircle of fairies and white muslin were standing on the right toe around the enameled flower bank of green canvas, on which the belated prince was sleeping. Suddenly a flute is heard. The fairies start, the trees open, the fairies all stand on the left toe, and the queen enters. It was the signorina. She bounded forward amid thunders of applause, and, lighting on one foot, remained poised in the air. Heavens, was this the great enchantress that had drawn monarchs at her chariot wheels? Those heavy, muscular limbs, those thick ankles, those cavernous eyes, that stereotyped smile— those crudely painted cheeks? Where were the vermeil blooms, the liquid, the expressive eyes, the harmonious limbs of Anamula? The signorina danced. What gross discordant movements! The play of her limbs was all false and artificial. Her bounds were painful athletic efforts. Her poses were angular and distressed the eye. I could bear it no longer. With an exclamation of disgust that drew every eye upon me, I rose from my seat in the very middle of the signorina's pas de fascination and abruptly quitted the house. I hastened home to feast my eyes once more on the lovely form of myself. I felt that henceforth to combat this passion would be impossible. I applied my eyes to the lens. Anamula was there, but what could have happened? Some terrible change seemed to have taken place during my absence. Some secret grief seemed to 
cloud the lovely features of her I gazed upon. Her face had grown thin and haggard. Her limbs trailed heavily. The wondrous luster of her golden hair had faded. She was ill, ill, and I could not assist her. I believe at that moment I would have forfeited all my claims to my human birthright if I could only have been dwarfed to the size of an animacule and permitted to console her from whom fate had forever divided me. I racked my brain for the solution of this mystery. What was it that afflicted the sylph? She seemed to suffer intense pain. Her features contracted, and she even writhed as if with some internal agony. The wondrous forests appeared also to have lost half their beauty. Their hues were dim and in some places faded away altogether. I watched Animula for hours with a breaking heart, and she seemed absolutely to wither away under my very eye. Suddenly, I remembered that I had not looked at the water drop for several days. In fact, I hated to see it, for it reminded me of the natural barrier between Animula and myself. I hurriedly looked down on the stage of the microscope. The slide was still there, but, great heavens, the water drop had vanished. The awful truth burst upon me. It had evaporated until it had become so minute as to be invisible to the naked eye. I had been gazing on its last atom, the one that contained Animula, and she was dying. I rushed again to the front of the lens and looked through. Alas, the last agony had seized her. The rainbow-hued forests had all melted away, and Animula lay struggling feebly in what seemed to be a spot of dim light. Ah, the sight was horrible. The limbs, once so round and lovely, shriveling up into nothings. The eyes, those eyes that shone like heaven, being quenched into black dust. The lustrous golden hair now lank and discolored. The last throw came. I beheld that final struggle of the blackening form and I fainted. When I awoke, out of a trance of many hours, I found myself lying amid the wreck of my instrument, myself as shattered in mind and body as it is. I crawled feebly to my bed, from which I did not rise for many months. They say now that I am mad, but they are mistaken. I am poor, for I have neither the heart nor the will to work. All my money is spent, and I live on charity. Young men's associations that love a joke invite me to their lecture on optics before them, for which they pay me and laugh at me while I lecture. Linley, the mad microscopist, is the name I go by. I suppose I talk incoherently while I lecture. Who could talk sense when his brain is haunted by such ghastly memories? while ever and anon among the shapes of death I behold the radiant form of my lost Anamula. Well, there you have it, my friends. The conclusion of The Diamond Lens by Fitz James O'Brien. When I finished this story, I went right into recording my synopsis of it or my review of it afterwards, and it went something like this. What the hell was that? 
I think we just read a story by an anti-Semite. I think we just read a story by an anti-Semite. However, then I started editing my recording, and I listened to it again. And when I when I do that, I, I I'm actually able to listen to it more in depth. It's my second reading through, and um, I'm I'm playing pieces over and over again. So I really kind of dive a little bit deeper into it and notice things that I didn't notice the first time through. Um, and I gotta say, I am. It's growing on me. I, I'm not as um, let down by it as I was the first time. Um, the the main issue is I don't know if the author the author doesn't express enough concern about the terrible things that the I I don't know if I should call him the protagonist that the main character um, has done. Uh, but then I start thinking, but it's not like authors can't write about bad people. Of course they can. We want bad people in a story, but we want them, we want to be ensured that the author thinks they're bad too. (laughs) And that's what I'm having a hard time uh, reconciling. It's probably it probably has to do with the fact that I know the author was born in the 1800s, and that people had different views on things in the 1800s. I I think I'm right saying that we're more progressive now than we were then. I know that currently. Uh, We have some major issues going on, particularly in America, and it can seem at times that we're not any more progressive. So, you know, that's debatable. But um, anyway, I, I, I feel like there's more of a possibility that Fitz James O'Brien was actually a racist (laughs) and that he didn't think it was that big a deal to kill a Jew in his story. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm going to take the, um, I'm going to, I'm going to tell myself that no, he's just writing, you know, the, 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 it's called a twist. You guys, you know, we think this guy is a protagonist and he turns out to be an antagonist. I mean, that's good writing, right? It's a twist. That's what I'm telling myself. <laughs> anyway, um, it was hard for me personally to read some of the lines in this, but um, you know, I didn't want to change a, I didn't want to leave out or change a part of history. So, um, anyway, that's uh, one of the aspects of this story that I didn't really like. Kind of left me with a sour taste in my mouth. Um, I also find it insane that uh this guy murders his neighbor then he uh falls in love with the first animacule and a malcule that he sees <laughs> okay he's like falls desperately in love with this this animal uh goes out decides to see what the the real world has to offer and finds this signorina and just destroys her like talks about how ugly she is um and then what does he do he forgets to water his new pet 
and lets it die. I mean, I can't believe this guy. I just don't even know what to say. I I certainly don't regret reading it. It's not going to go down as one of my all-time favorite stories in, you know, by any means. But there was some interesting things uh, discussed in it. Uh, I, I kind of had it in my mind that it wasn't going to devolve into a love story. I, I didn't see that coming at all. Um, it got very romantic, and I mean that in both senses. You know, the re- romantic relationship he wanted to have with, with uh, Anna Mula, and also romantic in that, well, it was written during the romantic period, if I'm not mistaken, uh, 1800s is what you would call uh, romanticism. And basically the language was very flowery. It got, it, it, I mean, it, it was always very flowery, but it got very flowery uh, once he started talking about Anna Mula and her setting. Um, it, it was just um, very romantic in both senses of the word. And I didn't like that as much. That's not to say I don't like romance, um, romantic writings, Frankenstein, one of my favorite uh, writings from that period. But uh, I just didn't like how it turned into a love story. Eh, not really into that. Um, Animalcule. I looked that up. That was actually a word that they used back then. Um, Oh, by the way, I didn't mention, um, I did find out when the story was written. It was written in 1858, so a few years before he died. And um, back then, they used animalcule to describe a very small, like a microscopic animal, like amoebas. Um, it's like an animal and molecule, I think. It's a combination of those words. And that's where anim- animula, the name of his beloved animalcule, is probably derived One line I found interesting, and I didn't really get it the first reading through, uh, but on the second reading, when I started editing, I noticed he said this, if science had only the means of conducting and reduplicating sounds as it does rays of light, and then he goes on to talk about how wonderful it would be to um, be able to hear the words of, uh, I guess, Anna Mula, although maybe he saw her saying something. I don't remember the context exactly. But anyway, I thought that was interesting because this story written in 1858 is unique in that it takes place between the inventions of photography and the phonograph. So photography was still, you know, um, relatively young, but photographs were a thing. You could take a picture of something or someone and have it and keep it and look at it over and over again, but you couldn't yet record the sound of anything and have a recording of it. That didn't happen until 1877. So a good um, almost uh, 19 years after this was published, did uh, Thomas Edison invent the phonograph. So I found that interesting. I I love finding little bits of uh, lines that describe the times. Um, in a not for straightforward way, like you have to know something to be able to determine what time this was. Uh, it's an interesting context to the story. So there we go. I- I'm not going to call it a great story. Um, it had a pretty good foundation, I thought. It got a little freaky when he started talking to a medium. Um, and then it got, I think it 
got considerably worse when it started when it was a love story um, for an animalcule. <laughs> anyway, you know, they're not all going to be five out of five stars. So hope you enjoyed it and uh, we will catch you next time.